A successful businessman once recounted how he was able to make lots of money in life. He tells us that after his graduation from school, he apprenticed in a camera store where he learned how to use, maintain, and repair cameras. And after doing that for some time, he wanted to start his own business. And so he went to his father and he asked his father if he would give him some money to start this business. And after his father listened to his plan, he said to him, son, this is a brilliant idea, but you need to stand on your own feet and find your own way in life and not depend on others for your success. The young man took the advice and he went to work. He did two jobs and worked weekends. And for 15 years, he went away with all his heart until he saved enough money and begun his business. And once he did, he had never looked back. Like the ancient Stoics, we value self-sufficiency as one of the cardinal virtues. We believe in working for ourselves and making our way through life. Most of us will not tolerate the idea of living on the government, and we should not unless it is absolutely imperative. We live in a culture where from a very early age we teach our children to be self-reliant. And there is nothing wrong with having our children and ourselves work for what we have. In fact, that is right and biblical. If a man does not work, he ought not to eat. We are reminded that we must work, live in quiet, in, in, live quietly and mind our own business and work with our own hands. But while self-sufficiency and self-reliance might be acceptable in certain circumstances, when it comes to the biblical realm and the theological realm, self-sufficiency and self-reliance runs against the grain and the tenor of biblical revelation. It does not work when it concerns our relationship with God. And Jesus tells a parable, a parable that is intended to cut human self-sufficiency at the root. It is a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we read in, Rome, in, in Luke 18 and verses 9 to 14. It occurs in the context of prayer. Jesus taught repeatedly on the subject of prayer. We know that, for instance, in chapter 11 of Luke, we have the model prayer of the Lord's Prayer, where he taught the disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. That essentially prayer at its root must be concerned with the kingdom of God, with the reign of God, with the will of God, that God's will and reign should be exercised. He teaches in chapter 11 on prayer that when we pray, we must pray with shamelessness. 
you will note that, for instance, in chapter 11 and verse 8, where Jesus tells this parable of the friend of midnight, and Crumb does well in bringing this out. In the parable of the friend at midnight, this fellow comes to a friend, wakes him up, and wants bread because he has a visitor from out of town. And the Lord says, I say to you that though he will not rise, that is, the house, the house owner, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs, as many loaves as he needs. The term that is used here, persistence, is an idea. And an idea means shamelessness. It is precisely because the man has come, and has come at an inopportune time. He breaks convention, he comes at midnight, and he wakes his friend. He's shameless. Our Lord tells us that those who come to God and pray must be shameless. We must be bold. We must not stand on convention where God is concerned. We must bring our request with this holy shamelessness of heart. In chapter 8, in chapter 11, he talks about seeking and asking and knocking, connoting the persistence with which we must pray. But here in chapter 18 of Luke and verses 1 to 8, the, the story, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge is one which emphasizes the need for persistence in prayer. Now, in our passage, in verses 9 to 14, the Lord Jesus continues to teach that prayer must not only be persistent, but prayer to God must be offered in humility and independence upon God. And so, there is a theme of prayer which, which connects both parts of chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, and verse 9 to 14. But we must not make the mistake of simply concluding that the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is merely about prayer. It is about prayer, but it is not only about prayer, and neither is it chiefly about prayer. There is a clue in the passage, in verse 9 and in verse 14 that tells us what the parable is all about. It is in the introduction to the parable in verse 9 where Luke says regarding Jesus, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, dikaio. They were righteous. The word righteous is important. If you go down to verse 14, you will notice Jesus speaks now in the parable, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. But the word that is justified is the word righteous, dikaio. And so dikaio, righteous, brackets the parable. The parable is essentially about who will be righteous in God's sight, who will be acceptable in God's sight. And the answer to that is fleshed out then in the parable given here. And so it's, it sets out to ask the question and to answer the question, who will be considered righteous in the sight of God? And so the parable has then an introduction in verse 9. It has a body in verses 10 to 13, and it has a conclusion in verse 14. What can we say regarding this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Well, the first thing that we should note is this. 
that is, the attitudes of self-reliance and pride preclude one from finding acceptance with God. That, I think, is a basic truth that we must start with. The attitudes of self-reliance and pride preclude one from finding acceptance with God. Luke says that Jesus spoke this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous in verse 9. That the reason that our Lord Jesus gave this parable was because there were people who were surrounding him who trusted in themselves. Notice as one writer tells us they did not think themselves to be righteous. They trusted in themselves to be righteous. That is, pehitho is the verb to trust. It means to put one's confidence in. It means to rely upon, to depend upon. These people were relying upon and depending upon their own abilities to produce righteousness before God. And so Jesus tells them a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The parable introduces, of course, the two main characters. Two men, we read in verse 10, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee appears first. He is the self-reliant and proud man. Now, today when we use the term Pharisee, we see that as a synonym of hypocrisy. If somebody says to you, you are a Pharisee, you're not going to take that as a compliment. Well, I hope you wouldn't because it is not a compliment. Pharisee is synonymous with hypocrisy. But that was not how the term was used in the first century. In fact, the term Pharisee literally means separated ones, people who are set apart. And it wasn't that these people gave it themselves this name. It was given to them. It was a monkier, a nickname given to these people. We are not quite sure when, precisely when, the Pharisees began as a movement in Israel. But we do know that they began sometime during the Hasmonean reign, after the revolt of Matthias and his five sons, the Judas, the, the, the Maccabean revolt. And the term Maccabean simply means hammer. In other words, Judas Maccabeus simply means Judas the hammer. He came from the family, his last name would have been Hasmonean. They were the Hasmonean family. And after Judas, his descendants reigned in Israel, ruled over Israel. The Pharisees began somewhere after the revolt of Judas and the Maccabeans. You will recall that in 167 B.C., Antiochus IV was a Syrian king, and the Syrians ruled over Israel. Antiochus IV called himself Epiphanes, meaning the manifestation of God. He thought himself was God on earth. And he was intent on establishing and setting up Hellenism over Israel. He wanted the Jews to live like Greeks. And so he eventually went into the temple in Jerusalem, sacked it, and also set up an image, an idol in the temple. He forbade the Jews to worship 
Yahweh and imposed on them pagan worship and anyone who resisted was put to death. It is in this scenario then that Matthias and his five sons, including Judas Maccabeus, rose and they began a guerrilla warfare against a mighty Syrian army, and Antiochus IV. By 163 BC, this little guerrilla army had beaten this mighty Syrian army and drove them out of, out of Israel. But there were some within Israel who looked at these circumstances and they questioned why is it that God had not fulfilled the promises that he had given in the scriptures regarding Israel? Why is it that they were constantly under foreign domination? And the question that they asked, they answered it by saying, the reason that Israel has not been blessed is because of our ungodliness and our sinfulness. Out of this then came a group of men who were pious, who began to think that they had to live more righteous than ever before. They wanted them to live like priests in ordinary life. And so they began to explore and to extend the scriptures and to give elaborations of biblical rules. They committed themselves to a strict interpretation of the law. They emphasized dietary laws and ritual purity and observance of the Sabbath. These were the Pharisees. They began with the right intention. And they began to seek ways in which to serve the Lord. We are told that there were only 6,000 Pharisees in Israel in the first century. But their influence was widespread. There were two main groups of Pharisees. There was first of all the disciples of Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Shammai was a strict Pharisee. For instance, he, he would tell you that if you, if you were married, you could not be divorced under any circumstance except in the case of adultery. You had another school of Pharisee, the disciples of Rabbi Hillel, and Hillel was lenient. And so he would tell you that if your wife were to speak loudly in her house so that the next door neighbor could hear what she said, you could have a reason for divorce. Of course, if she burnt the toast or the equivalent of the toast, that would be surely a reason for divorce. We do not know what school and to which of these two groups this Pharisee belonged. But what we know that he was one who was very strict and very devout in spiritual matters. Now Jesus says this man, this Pharisee, goes up to the temple to pray. There were two main times in the day when people prayed. They prayed at 9 a.m. in the morning or at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. We do not know at what time he went to the temple. But he also went up to the temple to pray. And Jesus describes the manner in which he prayed. For we read in this passage, in verse 11, that the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, meaning that he went up to pray and he stood apart from the rest of the worshipers. It seems ostensibly that he believed himself too pure to mix with the ordinary worshipers, so he stood apart and prayed with himself. 
We see the manner of his prayer. He's standing apart. We notice then not only the manner of his prayer, but the content of his prayer. And essentially, his prayer consists of two parts. There is, first of all, a listing of the vices that he studiously avoided, and secondly, the virtues that he diligently practiced. He begins to pray, and he says, God, I thank you. And that's a great start to any prayer. But as you read the rest of the prayer, you begin to recognize that his prayer was less about God and more about himself. Only once in this prayer does he refer to God, the rest of the time only to himself. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, that is, robbers. Unjust. People who abuse others legally. Adulterers. Or even as this tax collector. This is a man, and by the way, let us be very clear, he was not being hypocritical. He was not a robber, and he was not unjust, and he was not an adulterer. These were all things that he did. These were, these were all things that he avoided. He was, in this sense, an upright man. So he tells us the things that he did not do, and then he tells us the things that he did. He says, I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I possess. This man sees himself radically different from others. In fact, one writer says, what he says here is, I thank you God because I'm such a great guy. He then lists his virtues. I fast twice a week. Now, the, the law of Moses stipulated that there was only to be one time for fasting in the year on the Day of Atonement. But there were Pharisees who were fasting twice a week, on a Monday and a Thursday. And this man fasted twice a week. He also says, I give a tenth of all that I possess. Again, the law required that they should tithe or give a tenth of their earnings. And so if you had a field and you planted grain, uh, or if you had an orchard, or you had a vineyard and you produce wine, you were to give a tenth of what you produce. This man, however, was far different. He gave a tenth of everything that he possessed. And so it would also include even the spices in his garden according to Luke 11 verse 42. He did not merely then believe that he was satisfying the law. He thought he was able to exceed even the demands of God. Again, one writer tells us this is the man who sets an exam, who sits the exam himself, who grades his own exam and gives himself an A+. He believed that he was quite impressive. He was impressive to himself. In his own eyes, he was a class above everybody else. And yet, God was not impressed, not even in the least. The attitudes, 
of self-reliance and pride preclude people from the favor of God and from acceptance with God. Verse 13 introduces the second character, the tax collector. And right here we see a point being made. That is, secondly, acceptance before God requires the attitude of humble dependence upon the mercy of God. If, if the attitudes of self-reliance and pride preclude one from acceptance with God, then acceptance before God requires the attitude of humble dependence upon the mercy of God. So Jesus says regarding this tax collector, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Here we find a man who is the contrast, the opposite of the preceding braggart. This tax collector shares a Jewish ancestry with the Pharisee. Both of them are from the nation of Israel. However, here the similarity ends. Because the tax collector was perceived to be one who worked in one of the most despised professions in all of Israel. In fact, in the New Testament, tax collectors appear in conjunction with sinners and with prostitutes and with Gentiles. In other words, they were associated with the very dregs of society. They were loathed by people in the first century, tax collectors. And it's not just because people don't like paying taxes. I understand that even in the first century, and even today, we do not like paying taxes. But, but they weren't just disliked because we don't like paying taxes. Tax collectors were loathed because, first of all, they were perceived to be disloyal to the community. You need to remember that in 63 AD, the Romans began to rule. And the way the Romans were able to rule that vast empire, one of the ways they did so, was by collecting tributes or taxes from the provinces. And so when they took over Israel, they imposed taxes. They were a foreign power ruling over Israel. And the tax collectors were Jews, but they were working on behalf of a foreign power, collecting taxes for Rome. And so people thought of them as traitors. These people were not helping Israel. They were helping the oppressors of Israel. You cannot imagine then how much then they were hated. And secondly... They were hated not only because they were seen as disloyal to the community, but they were hated because of their notoriety for personal dishonesty. You need to understand that first century taxation was far worse than what we face here in Canada. You say, well, that's, that's, that's impossible. You see, tax collectors were, were strategically placed at important points of entry, at ports, on major highways. And they tax everything. They tax everything. When you come to a port or you come to an entrance, you're driving your little cart. And you have your little donkey. And you have some goods on it. Well, the tax collector will charge you for the goods. And then he will charge you based on the wheels on the cart. You had to pay a lot of taxes. People were taxed out. 
if you get what I mean. On top of collecting money for Rome and collecting for the local government, the, the, the tax collectors often take a cut for themselves. So they were able to live fabulously wealthy lives. They were filthy rich. Take a guy like Zacchaeus. He was very, very rich. Well, how did he get his riches? By lining his pocket. By stealing from the people. And so you can understand that people did not like tax collectors. Thank God they were checks and balances with those who work with Revenue Canada and other places. Thirdly, they were hated because they were perceived to be ritually unclean. Ritually unclean. These were people who worked and came into contact with all sorts of people, particularly Gentiles. And you know, the Pharisees believed that if you were to be in close proximity with a non-Jew, you would be contaminated. But they were also in contact with Gentiles and Samaritans and so on. And so they were seen to be ritually impure. Plus, they were also working on the Sabbath and breaking the Sabbath. Such, then, is the condition of this man. He goes up to the temple, and he also goes to pray. We are told the manner of his prayer. Because like the Pharisee, he also stands apart and prays apart. But here the similarity ends. Because whereas the Pharisee stands apart because he considered himself too pure to mix with ordinary worshippers, this tax collector stands apart because he perceives himself too impure to mix with ordinary worshippers. We note the content of his prayer. There is no litany, there is no list of vices that he has avoided. There are no terms given about his goodness. He has one pithy statement to make to God. He has one statement to make, and it is simply this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You notice how he prays. We are told that he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven. This is a man who perceives himself to be patently unworthy. He dares not gaze into heaven. But he beats his breast. There is this repetitive action of hitting himself on the chest over and over again, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man has a sense of guilt. He comes to understand and to accept himself as guilty of breaking the law of God. He sees himself under the judgment of God. He sees himself as one who deserves divine judgment. And so he cries, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But I want you to notice that the cry that he makes to God is important because he uses a term for mercy that is highly significant in the Jewish thought world. He uses the term hilaskomai. God, be merciful to me, hilaskomai. What does this mean? What does this term mean? Well, the term hilaskomai, often in the Septuagint, appears in the context of the sacrificial system of old. 
Hilaskomai, then, in this context, means to be propitiated. He's actually asking God to turn away his anger. He's asking God to provide atonement for his sins and to remove his wrath from him. God, be merciful. God, be propitiated towards me. God, would you not provide a covering? Would you not remove my sins and remove your anger? That's what he's asking of God. God, be merciful to me. God, be propitious to me. You see, this this tax collector has a brilliant insight regarding himself because he says, God, be merciful to me, not to a sinner, but be merciful to me, the article is there in the Greek, be merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner. Here is a precursor of the Apostle Paul. It is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul could say that he is the chief of sinners. But this man, before Paul was ever converted, saw himself as the chief of sinners. He says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. There is none higher than I am. I am in a bad place. I am the worst of men. God, be propitiated towards me. It is this. It is this man who God hears and who finds acceptance with God. The attitudes of self-reliance and pride preclude one from finding acceptance with God. But acceptance with God is found through humble dependence upon the mercy of God. In verse 14, we see the climax of this parable. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What's the third point then? If self-reliance and pride excludes one from, the, from acceptance with God, and acceptance with God comes through humble dependence upon his mercy, then thirdly, God justifies those who cast themselves in humble dependence on, on his mercy. It says that this man went down to his house justified. There is a role reversal. You remember when we started off, we are told that the Pharisee went up and then the tax collector went up to pray. Now they go down, the, world, the roles are reversed. The tax collector goes down first. And we are told that this man went down to his house justified. This, this is an important term, the term justify. It does not mean to make a person righteous, but it means to be declared righteous. The term justification, dikaio, is a legal term. It's the courtroom. It's the imagery of the courtroom. It is when somebody goes to court and charged with a crime and the court finds the person not guilty, that person is justified legally. There is nothing that the law could ever do to that person who is declared justified. Amanda Knox in the States has precisely found that, being declared justified. Whether or not she was guilty of the crime, the courts have declared her justified, not guilty, and therefore she's free. 
This is what happens to this man. He goes to God and he says, Lord, be merciful to me. And he is declared righteous legally in the sight of God. It means that it is as though he had never sinned. God confirms a status, a legal status of righteousness upon this man. He's a tax collector. He's the worst of the worst. But God declares him righteous. And notice that the status, this legal status that he receives of being righteous, he receives it by divine grace without a scintilla of good work. There is absolutely no personal merit. He does nothing to receive this verdict from God. All he simply does is he goes to the court of God and he says, Lord, will you show me mercy? Without a scintilla of good works, he's declared justified. Notice, furthermore, that the status that he receives of being justified is a permanent status. Because the verb dikaio occurs in the perfect form of the verb. And what it means is that the moment the man walked down to his house, he was already justified. And when he woke up the next morning, he was a justified man. In fact, he was justified throughout his entire life, even until the point of death. He was still justified. That the law could never condemn him. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. This status that God gave him was permanent and complete and could never be revoked. You see, God justifies, God declares righteous sinners who cast themselves in humble dependence upon his mercy. And why? Why does God do that? Well, we're told in the latter part of verse 14. For, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee exalted himself in pride, and God will humble him by casting him into eternal damnation. The tax collector, on the other hand, humbles himself, and God exalts him by declaring him righteous and by granting him the privilege of eternal life and happiness. This parable demands something from all of us. And first of all, it tells us that we must never trust in ourselves or in any personal merit before God. This Pharisee was among the best of mankind, morally upstanding. But his failure was that he trusted in his performance and not in God. He evaluated himself by his own standard and not the standard of God. He did not evaluate himself by the standard of the holy God, a standard which demands absolute perfection. And precisely because he did not consider God's standard, <laughs> he was righteous in his own sight. You know, you know, when we apply our own standards to our lives, we always come out smelling like roses. We always think we're better than somebody else because we're using our own standards. Only when we look at our lives in the sight of God, 
Only when we bring our lives, our thinking, and our acting, and our motivations, and we bring them before God, only then can we truly see the desperate wickedness of our hearts. This man, you see, did not look at himself from God's perspective. And because he only evaluated himself with his own perspective, from his own perspective, with his own standards, he did not ask God for anything. You notice in his prayer, he, he asked God for nothing. He doesn't say to God, help me, give me grace, forgive me. He needs nothing. And therefore, he asked nothing. All too often, the Pharisee is among us. He's much more prevalent than we would want to imagine. We think of, no, no, he was a Pharisee. But the Apostle Paul even had the same problem as the Pharisee did, trusting in his own righteousness. He tells us this in Philippians 3, 4 to 7. He says, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more also circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I counted lost for Christ. He thought that God would have been impressed with his ethnic and his religious credentials until he met the glorified Christ. In our culture, it promotes self-sufficiency and pride. We are encouraged to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to think positive thoughts about ourselves. And even where we are honest with ourselves to accept that we have flaws, we tend to smooth them out, to minimize them. We minimize our flaws and we magnify our attributes. Because finally we believe that we are ultimately by ourselves, that we are good enough for God. And the reason our society will not repent and will not be called sinners is because we believe that we are fundamentally good. It is because we are examining ourselves with our own standards. The man or woman who will find acceptance with God, must know that he can never impress God with his own righteousness. That we can never be on our own good enough for God. It requires a humility of heart that we trust not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. It requires of us that we humble ourselves for God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You need to come to a place where you are no longer trusting in your goodness, but trusting in God. And secondly, you must receive this good news. That dependence upon God leads to justification. One writer tells us that what ultimately matters is not our past record, whether good or bad. What really matters is now, right now, our standing before God. Are we justified or are we under condemnation? 
That's what really matters. But there is good news. Whatever your record has been, you see, the tax collector brings good news for us. He's placed here as an example for us to imitate. That you and I, if you feel that you have sinned and you feel the weight of sin, there is good news. And the good news is that God receives sinners. God justifies sinners. And what you need to do is what this tax collector did. You need to come to God and you need to say, God be merciful to me. God be merciful to me because that's the cry that God heeds. The cry of dependence. You need to be able to come to God with a frankness. With, with this shamelessness. In the sense that you're telling it as it is. You are not involved in any kind of cover-ups. You're saying to God, I've messed up. I'm not worthy, but Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, be propitiated towards me, a sinner. You need to know that there is great hope for you if you are in that condition. Because the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is the basis of God's mercy. The, the, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 17 says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you are a sinner, you may come to God and you may say to him, God be merciful to me a sinner. Because it is Jesus Christ who 2,000 years ago, who went to the cross, who made atonement for our sins, who took God's wrath upon himself so that we might be free. And any man or any woman or boy or girl who applies to Jesus, who lays hold on the cross of Christ, who goes to Jesus and says, Lord, be merciful, you will even this very moment be declared righteous in heaven. Forever. Nothing else added. No good works added. Simply a cleaving and a holding on to the work of Jesus Christ. You must receive this good news and cast yourselves completely and wholeheartedly upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But you must also know, thirdly, that this humble dependence must also be a way of life. Jesus tells it to these who were thinking of themselves as righteous. It's recorded by the Spirit of God in Scripture that you and I must know that the Christian life not only commences with humble dependence upon God for salvation, but the entire life of discipleship is a life of continual dependence, humble dependence upon God. And the more godly we become, the more dependent we become. You see, the whole Christian life is lived knowing that we did not get ourselves here, that we are what we are by the grace of God. We, we live our lives knowing that we are acceptable to God because of Christ and Christ alone. 
the Heidelberg Catechism in the very first question asks, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And it answers that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. What I'm saying is, you must live this Christian life in humble dependence. You must get up in the morning and you must say, I am what I am by the grace of God, that Jesus Christ is everything to me. He alone is my hope and my stay. I am what I am because he paid for my sins. That's a life of humble dependence. You see, this is why the old Puritan could say, there go I, but for the grace of God. The only difference between myself and those who are in sin, and you and those who are in sin, it is because grace has found you. And it means that you are to live relying on Christ and relying upon his grace. The apostle Paul says, I want to be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God by faith. You see, even though Paul was saved by relying upon God, he lived his whole life relying upon Christ. It is therefore a call for us to change in attitude. That our sufficiency is of God. We must practice this humble dependence in realizing always that if there is any, any movement in our lives, any modicum of spiritual improvement, any signs of spiritual fruitfulness, any sign that we are changing, it is because grace is working on the inside. If we do anything that is pleasing to God, it is only because grace, grace enables us. You see, we are what we are by the grace of God. And you and I must live depending upon God. When you, when you live in humble dependence, it means you must be praying in humility before God. People who are living in, in, in dependence on God pray. We attempt a service in humility and dependence that God will help us. We make our plans about our future in dependence upon God. This is living independence. And this living independence on God is doxological. It is the only way you and I are going to please God. It is the only way that you are going to know the approbation of God by daily resting and relying on His grace. It's never vaunting ourselves. It's never thinking highly that we have accomplished anything, that by ourselves we are pleasing, but that we are relying. Because as we rely upon God, the emphasis is placed on God and not ourselves, and God is glorified. May God help us that as we march along in this Christian race, and as we run this Christian race, let's run it by knowing that our strength comes from the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord who makes heaven and earth. And as we grow stronger and stronger in the spirit, may we become weaker and weaker in self-reliance. 
May God help us that we cast ourselves in every area of our lives and depend solely upon the grace of God for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.